With a new year and the rise of resolutions, it's easy to forget that messages within the diet and wellness industries can be harmful. Although we are all inundated with impossible to attain beauty standards and overwhelming social pressures, today's guest in Anti-Dieter makes it a bit easier to love and fuel your body with specific strategies. Keep listening to learn how to transform your relationship with food by listening to your body and retraining your brain to be an intuitive eater. Before we get started today, I just wanted to issue a quick trigger warning for our viewers. Some of the topics that we may cover today could include eating disorders, disordered eating, nutrition, and diet culture. Just wanted to throw that out there before we get started. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Bench. This is your host, Jules Makia, with our wonderful guest, Rachel Manor. Rachel is the sports nutritionist at UNC. Um, we're very lucky to have her, and I want to give her the space to give a background of herself since she's so awesome. Awesome. Thank you for the invitation, Jules. I'm a huge fan of the podcast and just honored to be in your, your 2021 lineup, so thanks for having me. Um, so a little bit about myself. I, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and I played all sorts of sports growing up, and I played basketball at the University of Portland in Oregon, and I did the, the pre-med track. I thought I was going to go to PA school or PT school, um, but that, uh, that wasn't my calling. I ended up meeting a dietitian on a train right after I graduated and, and learned that that's, um, that's what I needed to do. I had a lot of friends in college that you know, struggled with negative body image, some harmful eating disorder behaviors, or just even just had some some strange beliefs about food and nutrition. Um, and I really wanted to help them out. And I felt really helpless at the time. So I, um, you know, I identify with being an intuitive eater. Um, I was one of those athletes that kind of ate what I wanted when I wanted. And um and it worked for me. And now kind of looking back and realizing like I had an immense amount of body privileges and still do. Um, and intuitive eating is, is really a privilege and one that I want everyone to have access to. Um, so like I said, after I graduated from college, realized I wanted to be a dietitian, I got my master's degree in nutrition and exercise science at Lipscomb University and did my dietetic internship in Nashville. And then my first job was as a sports dietitian at the University of Oregon and worked there for a couple of years, had a really good experience, learned a lot. And then um, this job came open in 2013. Um, I had to apply, you know, it's the University of National Champions and um, feel really grateful that the sports med staff brought me on um, about eight years ago now. I've evolved as a person and a clinician, and, and now I get to do a lot of individual nutrition counseling. I do some team sessions, hydration testing, managing supplement protocols. Um, we put out a lot of anti-diet nutrition messaging on our social media and in newsletters, and also have some amazing sports nutrition interns that help with the fueling station, the Gatorade station, the athletes know well, um, so that I can um, support more student athletes and staff. Yeah. No, that's so awesome. I had a quick question too, just like listening to how you're introducing yourself um, and how it kind of changed. You called yourself at first a sports dietitian and now you call yourself a sports nutritionist. What's the difference there if there is one? 
Sure. I guess I just sort of use that language um, synonymously. Um, you know, there is a difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist. Absolutely. Um, you know, some, anyone can call themselves a nutritionist, um, but to be a dietitian, you have to have a bachelor's degree, complete um, a dietetic internship, pass a national board exam, become credentialed with the academy. Um, and yeah, very proud to call myself a dietitian, but sometimes in layman's terms, people are more used to hearing the, the language of nutritionist. But I guess I, if I were to label myself with a better title, it would be an anti-diet sports dietitian. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so Rachel, the next question I have for you is how is your approach different from the typical sports nutritionist? Yeah, so I take an anti-diet approach. I um, use the intuitive eating framework to guide our, my nutrition messaging and nutrition counseling. Um, and intuitive eating is really just eating if it weren't for diet culture. Um, intuitive eating is a self-care framework. Um, it integrates our emotions, our instincts, and rational thoughts um, to help guide our eating. Um, you know, and ultimately intuitive eating is, is a personal process. It's about honoring our health um, by listening to and responding to our body's cues and, and getting our needs met, um, which is easier said than done um, because it can get confusing. Yeah. So how did you come across intuitive eating and like, is it a new type of framework or like what's the background there? Sure. So it is, it's the intuitive eating framework isn't new. We were all born intuitive eaters, um, but like I said, diet culture makes it confusing. Um, intuitive eating was actually first coined by a couple of dietitians in the 90s, um, and they have since come out with four editions of the book of intuitive eating. The fourth edition came out in June of 2020. I highly recommend. Um, and there has been some research around intuitive eating. Um, Ohio State first started or came up with the first validated assessment tool for intuitive eating in 2006, and then um, did another um, updated validated assessment tool in 2013 to include both females and males. So it's relatively new in the research. Intuitive eating can be really difficult, um, you know, kind of depending on our, our life experience. So things like trauma, um, experiencing food insecurity, um, financial insecurity can certainly affect our relationship with food and our bodies. Um, experiencing depression, anxiety, um, perfectionism, you know, that all certainly affects how we, um, how we perceive our, our body's cues and how we respond to them. Um, things like weight stigma um, is a big one, you know, like any kind of teasing or bullying or commentary around food and bodies, um, you know, like those microaggressions, like the, the you sure you want to eat that or we need to go burn that off. Those are all examples of, of weight stigma and ways that diet culture shows up. So, um, you know, really depends on the an individual's personal experience. Um, and how they're able to connect with and honor their body's needs. And, and like I said, I think everybody deserves to have a healthy relationship with food. And so learning about intuitive eating, I think is helpful for everyone. Yeah, do you see athletes facing any particular struggles with intuitive eating? Yeah, so I think athletes have some specific barriers to intuitive eating, one being like really busy schedules, um, you know, really, really tight schedules with classes and practice and volunteering and, and friends and other um, other opportunities. So I, I think time constraints is, is tough and time management. Um, just being an athlete that participates in really intense exercise um, can certainly impact our, our appetite. 
um, experiencing injuries. You know, athletes are at higher risk of getting injured just in the nature of playing sports and injuries can affect our, our appetite and, and our body regulation. So there are there are a lot of them. I'm sure you, you maybe have some examples of some things that have come up with in your life or amongst your friends that have kind of disrupted how you um, respond to your body's cues. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I mean, we get up at 5 a.m. and like you don't want to eat at 5 a.m. but you have to kind of force yourself otherwise you're going to be starving by the time practice ends at 8 30 um and then you know it hits 8 30 you're hopping in the shower and then you're sprinting to class um hopefully you have time to hit the fueling station before that 905 class chances are you probably don't uh so for me i never would plan 905 classes because i like to eat (laughs) um between that but sometimes that's not an option that's interesting that you brought that up. I never really looked at it um, in that perspective. But do you have any advice on like how to kind of adapt intuitive eating to like a busy schedule or like something like that? Like how do you kind of incorporate that as an athlete? Yeah. So I think first we can acknowledge that it's really hard <laughs> um, having having a busy schedule. Um, but really at the the foundation of intuitive eating, it's about it's about self-care and it's about getting our needs met. So if we can stay grounded in those core goals and our values you know, and asking ourselves, how can we best take care of ourselves with the things that are going on today? You know, what can I do in my planning on the weekends? Um, what could I do like with my friends that might make it a little bit easier? Um, how can I pack? How can I invest? invest in certain um, cooking equipment or, or supplies that might help out my future self yeah. with it. Um, it's, it's, really, it's really hard. And then when you've got diet culture also that's giving you all these really confusing food, nutrition, and body messages, it's just like, it's so hard. Um, and I feel really lucky to be in a position to be able to, to connect with athletes and try to help them break down some of those barriers. And there's, there's so mm-hmm. many, so many barriers to optimizing our nutrition and Yeah, no, I think that's a perfect way to like dive into the next topic. But before that, I think it was just interesting that you said like investing in stuff. I bought an Instapot um, and it was the best decision I ever made because it quickly cooks frozen chicken. So I would Mm -hmm. literally put it in and run and take a shower. And by the time I got out, like my dinner was ready. It was the best thing. So plug for Instapot people. Like love it. Yeah. Can we insert ad sponsor? Uh, Yeah, I know. I could get in trouble for that. LOL. (laughs) Um, But you brought up diet culture. I think if you could give a background of that, I know it's like super, super kind of confusing. And I think people sometimes don't understand it and like what's going on. Like any, any background you can give regarding diet culture um, for anyone listening today. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah, a lot of people can kind of pick up on some context clues about what diet culture is, but I do think it would be really helpful to to provide kind of a more comprehensive definition of diet culture. So I'll share. Um, I've learned a lot from fellow anti-diet dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, Christy Harris. Um, she defines diet culture as this system of beliefs that equates thinness to health and moral virtue and superiority. And you know, you'll see this virtually everywhere if you're looking for it. Um, I, I also will share that you know, if once you see diet culture, you can't unsee it. Um, but diet culture also um, elevates certain foods and certain ways of eating and certain bodies and, um, and shapes and sizes, right? Um, and diet culture also demonizes certain foods and ways of eating and other bodies. And 
And this forces us to feel hyper aware and hyper vigilant about our food and our nutrition in our bodies. And, and it's really distracting. It distracts us from our, our pleasure and our purpose and our power um, and things that really matter to us, like our sport, our relationships, social justice issues. Um, and I also want to share that diet culture, you know, is disproportionately affects um, women, um, trans folks, people of color, people in larger bodies, people with disabilities, other marginalized individuals, um, and it, it oppresses a lot of people. So that's why I'm really passionate about um, getting diet culture out of our sport, sport culture. And I think a good first step is to identify like what diet culture is and how it shows up in our, in our culture and in our society. Yeah, I know you and I have had some interesting conversations about diet culture. And one, I just want to thank you again. Rachel actually helped out with our first episode with Charlotte and Blair. Um, She gave us some advice on how to approach talking about diet culture and approach talking about disordered eating and eating disorders. But that kind of reminds me of that episode. And like, I think Charlotte and Blair were both like examples of how like, they really internalized diet culture and then it also like intersected with being an athlete and so it was like this extra pressure and like they had all of these kind of beliefs that were just incorrect um about like weight gain weight loss and how it ties to their performance in sport how does that internalized diet culture specifically affect athletes and how does it specifically affect females i know that you said that it disproportionately affects females and people of color um, and trans folks and all of um, all of these different categories of people. So um, could you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, I think there's a lot of pressure for athletes to, to look a certain way. I think there's a really um, narrow look of what a successful athlete supposed to look like. Um, and it's really easy for a youth athlete to internalize this idea. Um, it's not their fault at all. I think it's the diet culture at large that we need to be directing our anger and frustration at. You know, people make those self-deprecating comments about bodies, or you hear people complimenting thinness or praising weight loss. You know, it makes sense for young athletes to internalize this idea that thinner equals better, thinner equals faster, um, and then to be more um, hyper-focused on how they might be able to change their their food or their exercise um, to to change their body size. And this is really dangerous, um, really, really dangerous. Um, The statistics are one in five female athletes are likely to develop an eating disorder. One in 10 male athletes are likely to develop an eating disorder. And so many other athletes will fall on that spectrum of dysfunctional eating behaviors. Um, And yeah, this is just why it's so important that we're we're having this conversation, talking about this, breaking down the stigma that so many people struggle with this, with these ideas about how a body should look or how an athlete's supposed to eat. Um, and it can really disconnect us from our, from our body um, and, getting, and ultimately getting our needs met that, um, so that we can, we can recover quickly and we can perform to the best of our ability. Yeah, no, I think it was really interesting um, that you shared that. And I am guilty of, I, I told you this previously that I am totally guilty of the self-deprecating comments. Um, and I've noticed an uptick in, in that behavior, um, especially recently, everybody is going through different things. I had a, a really bad 2020, as everyone has. Um, people might not know this, but I was diagnosed with mono in October, and that you know has a huge, huge impact on your body um, and how you feel. Um, and, and, I, and I think this is kind of where I was going with that, is being an athlete, you're so tied to how you feel and how you almost, like I hate saying it, but how you look like... 
I love looking strong and feeling strong. Like it is so tied to my identity. Um, and that's what I've definitely found out. Um, and I've, I've figured out like where I am unhealthy about my relationship with like my body image and weight and things like that. Um, but I know this past year has been such a struggle for everyone. So I'm so happy to have you on like talking about this and like, I'm happy to share my personal small struggle. I know people deal with way, way more than I do, but knowing that a lot of people are going through these things and kind of what advice you might have like navigating like how do you stop internalizing this culture how do you like recognize it and kind of get yourself to stop because i know for me it's something i want to stop doing i want to stop making these self-deprecating comments um and, and harming myself by doing that like what is your advice to people struggling with that um, I think one of the first things we could do is to bring awareness to this, like we're doing today, like you're doing, just bring awareness to how, how you think and how you feel about food and bodies. And, and when you're exposed to these messages, how does that make you feel? Um, we do not have to internalize messages from diet culture. Um, you know, hard stop. We can keep that out here, outside of out of our individual lives, outside of our teams, outside of our friend groups, out of our families. Like we do not have to participate. We can divest from that system of beliefs because it does not serve us. Um, so I think just bringing some gentle awareness to how it shows up is a really good first step. Um, and to just give yourself compassion um, and and to know also if you're if you're noticing you're feeling some body insecurities, the self-deprecating comments come up, maybe ask yourself who benefits from that. And I'd like to just share that it's a $72 billion industry that benefits when we feel insecure about our food and our bodies. Um, and I'm not interested in supporting a $72 billion industry that oppresses most people. I think that's scary. It's like all of these things were designed to make people feel bad um, so that they will buy these products or do these things or and that's scary um something else I was wondering is like how to be an ally to someone like I know I am so lucky I have really great friends and like I'm a part of a team that talks about these issues um like how do you be a supportive friend or how do you how do you stop um continuing this cycle of diet culture I know I've had friends shout out to Sarah Kate um one time I made a self-deprecating comment about like my weight or something and she called me out like she called me out mm -hmm. she was like don't do That's that like friend. don't tie your self-worth to your weight or to how you look or whatever like that's you know don't do that Jules like don't mm -hmm. do that um it, like that's such a good example okay that's what I was thinking I was like that's like what but what other advice do you have especially if you might have like a friend that might get really tied into this diet culture or you know falls for the the Instagram whatever yeah so I I think that's just so beautiful that you want to be an ally for folks that are struggling with this um and I think you know we can first acknowledge our privilege and that we're um we hold a lot of body privileges that we're not um subjected to not vulnerable to to so many diet culture messages um and for for those that feel they need to to look or eat a certain way um I think you could be a good role model for them. There is a, an organization on campus actually called Embody um, that's a student-run organization and they actually run trainings, um, I think it's a couple times a semester uh, for this specific thing actually um, in order to, to be to learn about how to be an ally for someone that's struggling with disordered eating disorder. It's about a, a three-hour training. Um, but I think just, you know, 
talk, talking about a team culture where diet culture is just not accepted here. We want to embrace body diversity. We want to help people feel safe and feel supported in this, in this team or in this house, um, that we want you to be able to eat what you want and that to eat food that makes you feel good and a consistent schedule and have a variety and balance uh, of food. And I think you could do that by, um, by modeling that healthy behavior, um, by helping them with their, with their health goals, maybe connecting them with, with resources, um, and just really coming from a place of no judgment and from compassion. Yeah. That, that sparked a question in my mind too. I think the holidays are a tough time for people especially being around sweets and just, you know, different time of the year. What advice do you have for the holidays, especially with intuitive eating, um, how to be compassionate to yourself? Yeah. Um, perhaps this could be the time where I might share, there's like four main characteristics of intuitive eating. Um, and one of them is that intuitive eaters, um, give themselves unconditional permission to eat. Um, and that might sound scary at first, um, especially if you have like a history of, of restricting foods. Um, but research actually shows if we give ourselves unconditional permission to eat, that we're less likely to overeat or, um, binge eat or feel guilt or shame associated with food. So just, you know, giving ourselves unconditional permission. Um, other characteristics of intuitive eating is that, um, intuitive eaters are all often more likely to eat based on their hunger and satiety cues most of the time. They're also more likely to eat for physical rather than emotional reasons most of the time. And then the fourth characteristic of intuitive eating is um, that intuitive eaters have this positive body food choice congruence, um, which means that intuitive eaters are able to like check in with themselves, check in with their bodies, ask themselves, you know, how does this, how does this food make me feel? Do I like this feeling? And kind of using that information to guide future food decisions. So if we're grounded in, um, in our goals and values and trying to practice self-care, giving ourselves unconditional permission to eat, um, listening to our hunger and satiety cues and, um, you know, choosing foods based on how they make us feel, um, I think that'd be a really great way to go into the holiday season. Um, but I also, you know, intuitive eating is not just for the holiday season, it's for all the time. Yeah, no, that's a great point. It's just a- another question. This is probably going to be a difficult question to ask, but for people struggling with like restrictive eating, how do you, like, what is your advice for them? To, like, how do they kind of move from that into becoming an intuitive eater? Like, what are the first steps or are there any resources or books or things like that that you recommend for people who are really wanting to become an intuitive eater? Yeah, so there are a lot of books and resources, the Intuitive Eating Book, the Intuitive Eating Workbook. I certainly recommend um, people can come check out our Instagram page at UNC Sports Nutrition. We talk a lot about intuitive eating and challenging diet culture. Um, but if you're just thinking about tipping your toes into intuitive eating, I might start with the principle of seeking satisfaction. Um, there, there are 10 principles of intuitive eating, but I think that's a, a good place to start is the um, seeking satisfaction principle. If we are choosing foods based on um, on enjoyment and pleasure and how food makes us feel that's a really good place to start so tuning into our bodies assessing our hunger you know we snack hungry are we meal hungry you know um, do we and maybe visualizing some different foods that we might be considering to eat do we want something that's hot or cold or or smooth or crunchy Um, you know just trying to tune into those sensual qualities of food um, and giving ourselves permission to to seek pleasure and enjoyment with our food um, I think is is actually radical in diet culture. Um, and 
not talked about enough. But I think if you're if you're feeling scared that um, that intuitive eating might not be for you, I just want to say like I see you and I hear you and I have so much compassion for those folks. And I just want them to know that there are resources out there, whether it's through their university or in their community. Um, there are there are a lot of resources out there to help folks um, have a healthier relationship with food. We, we keep mentioning diet culture. So the next question I have would be, how can we work to get diet culture out of our sport culture? Because I think they're very like intertwined. Yeah, you bet. Um, that's our tagline on our Instagram. I was like, we're trying to keep diet culture out of our sport culture. And it's really hard, um, especially if we don't know what it is or how it shows up. Um, so I think... We can do this by being really aware of how we talk about food and bodies. Um, you know, know that what we say about food and bodies matters, like people are listening. Um, and and try to embrace body diversity and help and help people feel safe and supported in, in their team culture um, so that they can get their nutritional needs met and get their mental health needs met, their emotional um, health needs met. Um, that's it's really it's all of our collective responsibility to create a culture where people feel um, feel safe. Yeah, no, those are those are all great like points and great points of advice. I think that's so important, and it's something I'm definitely gonna work on. Like I know, for example, I can definitely stop or I can work on stopping the self deprecating comments. And I think you've given a lot of like great advice on how to support others. Um, it's just unfortunately such an engraved part of our society so I think like like you said just being aware of this and like starting to really be conscious and careful about what you say and like UNC Sports Nutrition did um it remember it was like on the board where there were like adjectives you can use to tell someone like they look great like you're beautiful or something like that rather than like oh you look so thin or like oh this or that. Um, and that was such a great exercise. And I think that was really like interactive and a great way for people to just kind of see like, this is kind of how you should go about, um, approaching your friends and, and not perpetuating diet culture. Ah, thanks for bringing that up. Thanks for, that was the last week of February. Uh, That was, feels like an eternity. Um, and yeah, that was for National Eating Disorders Awareness Week. And I really enjoyed that. I really appreciated the student athletes that helped, um, helped man that table and engage with student athletes. And I think that is a, um, a really important point that we need to be aware about how we compliment people. It's so normalized to compliment people on their, their body weight, shape, and size. Um, and you know, we compliment thinness or we compliment weight loss, you know, people are well-intentioned, I'm sure. Um, but you just never know how that's going to make someone feel. You don't know what they're going through. Um, you also don't know who's listening and how it might affect them and how they feel. Um, and also when we're complimenting thinness, we're essentially saying like, I value your body more when it's small and I value your body less when it's bigger. Um, and I know that's maybe not what they specifically said, but that's really what's implied. And, and that really just perpetuates diet culture, this, this idea that some bodies are better than others. Yeah. I also just want to emphasize something you said, you don't know who's listening, like, even though you're talking, like say you and I are talking and one of us compliments, well, there might be someone else in the room and hearing something like that can be so triggering or so like toxic for them. That was something I like, that sparked something in my head. I was like, that is so true. Like, especially when you're on a team and like you're in the locker room or like you're surrounded by however many teammates, like 
that is so like important and actually something there was a girl on our team i'm I'm not gonna say who it was um because it took so much bravery for her um to come out and tell our team but there was a scale in our in our locker room which actually no one used our one of our um like a coach from a long long time ago had it and like put it in there um which was very toxic in a lot of ways um and a girl on our team addressed the entire team and she said you know i have struggled with disordered eating we need to get rid of the scale in the locker room um and it was something so many of us had the privilege of never thinking about and it just like not affecting us but it was you know she it's that whole idea of you never know who's in the room this scale her going in the locker room every day it was painful to go in the locker room and our locker room is supposed to be an inclusive environment where everyone feels safe and it we call it our safe space like it's in the basement like if you need to get away from the world like that's where you go and this girl on our team like it wasn't a safe space for her um yeah that was just something i thought about that that really had an impact on me yeah that's such a great example of how we can get diet culture out of our sport culture let's reject this idea that we need to be stepping on scales um that are the our weight on the scale has absolutely nothing to do with our performance. It's simply our relationship to gravity. And, um, and the focus on it is as a result of this, this oppressive system of beliefs that is diet culture. Having this conversation might encourage more people to be brave and do things like that, to stop perpetuating diet culture and to really like be an ally. That would be absolutely amazing. Okay, I have another question too. Um, I wanted to know too, like, what questions can intuitive eaters kind of ask themselves or like things to kind of like, how do you become an intuitive eater? What steps do you need to take? Like what, how, how do you interact with yourself um, when eating? Like, I know that so- might sound like a stupid question, but. <laughs> yeah. So I could talk a little bit about the principles of intuitive eating, kind of the framework. Um, so rejecting the diet mentality, rejecting diet culture is the first one. Um, I think I often talk with athletes about the hunger scale. Um, you know, it's a scale of one to 10, one being like grouchy, ravenous, low in energy, 10 being like overly stuffed full. Um, and so kind of using that as a tool of, of awareness, kind of tuning into our body, kind of checking in to see what level of hunger we're at. Um, and then, and then honoring it. Um, I like to use the analogy sometimes that, um, you know, when we perceive that physical sensation that we have to use the restroom, we don't question it, right? Like we just, we just find the closest restroom and we take care of it. Um, but for, for some folks in diet culture, when we perceive that physical sensation of hunger, it can be more confusing. Sometimes we're like, oh, it's, it's after eight o'clock. I shouldn't be hungry. Or I just ate. Why am I hungry? Like we don't do that with other physical sensations. Um, so just trying to, to view hunger like more neutrally and um, and acknowledge it and take care of it um, and and make peace with food and, and challenging the food police are all really important principles of intuitive eating seeking satisfaction with food like I mentioned giving ourselves permission to have have enjoyment and pleasure in our food experiences um, and and then the last principle of intuitive eating is about um, gentle nutrition. So it's it's the last principle um, because our relationship with food in our body is so important. But I know athletes like to talk about nutrition a lot. They're really interested in um, macro and micronutrients. Um, so sometimes athletes do like to start there. And I'm happy to you know meet the athlete where they're at and we can talk about gentle nutrition. Yeah, no, I think everything you've shared so far has been helpful to me and I'm hoping helpful to anyone listening. But 
I wanted to kind of wrap up, but I also wanted to give you the space um, to share anything else you might want to add. Um, I think most people um, like are not aware of the harms of diet culture. So I'm really glad that you brought awareness to this and like really tried to educate people and you educated me today um, as you always do. So um, yeah, I just want to give you the space to add anything you think we might have missed or um, any advice or anything like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks, Jules. This is really cool to, to bring awareness to, to diet culture so we can get out of our sport culture. Um, and I think with that, maybe just to talk to your listeners, to to remind everyone that we're all culture makers, um, that we all are capable of, of improving our culture to make our, our friends feel safe and supported um, in our company, you know, helping our friends have access to food that makes them feel good. Um, we can all contribute to a culture that does that. Um, and I just want to kind of emphasize to folks that, you know, what we say about food and bodies matter. People are listening. And I guess I also want to say, you know, if there are folks out there that identify as being an intuitive eater, um, that's fantastic. And I'm so happy for them that they are able to tune into their body's needs and get those needs met. And I just maybe want to encourage them to kind of reflect on why that is, why they are able to be an intuitive eaters and um, ask those folks to, um, to reflect and, and think about, you know, how can you help other people also be intuitive eaters? What, what can you do? Yeah, um, and also for anyone listening who is really interested in what Rachel had to say, be sure to follow the UNC Sports Nutrition Instagram account. Um, Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come on my podcast. Um, And for everything you've done for Bench, you've been a loyal supporter from the start, so we all appreciate it. Um, And thank you everyone for tuning in to this episode of Bench. This is your host, Jules Makia, and our wonderful guest, Rachel Manor. Want to share your story, whether you prefer to share on a podcast, in a video, on a panel, or in a written blog, we cannot wait to hear from you. Just go to uncutchapelhill.com, that is uncutchapelhill.com, click get involved, and then share your story. Amplifying your voice has never been so easy.